If you've got a Bible, um, open up to John chapter 1. Uh, we spent most of our time last week studying the first um, dozen verses or so. We uh, Technically, I think we read through verse 18, but we're going to really spend our time tonight talking about verses 14 through 18, and we'll make our way to verse 29 before the time is up. Um, but tonight is still kind of an introduction. Um, John is, uh, is a, pretty, um, a pretty incredible book. It's a pretty incredible story. Uh, so he takes his time kind of building his case. And this first chapter, these first 18 verses are really, uh, too, it's too, too good and um, too packed um, to just uh, do one message kind of on this. But y'all know the drill by now. Um, we, spend our, we take our time, but that's okay, right? Um, when I get done with this John study, by the looks of it, probably in about two years, um, so based on my my pace, I'm going to take all this together, and uh, I'm going to take about two years off and write a book. No, I'm, I'm not going to take two years off, but <laughs> it would take that long to uh, do what I want to do with this. I want I would love to uh, compile all this into a to a book one day. Um, John, I think, like any Christian, any Christian probably has a unique relationship with every book of the Bible. But John is probably uh, the most impactful book. Um, you know, you hear people say, if you want to know who Jesus is, start with John. Right? Don't go to Genesis. Don't go to Matthew. Even go to John and just read the story of John. And that's really a good place to start. Um, and, and I kind of, I'm taking that approach as we're studying this book, is to study it with the eyes that I think um, John intended, uh, fresh eyes that maybe have never heard of Jesus, um, has never, wasn't around when Jesus was around, but uh, it has, has just been introduced to him. So I, um, but I have a really special relationship with this book. Um, John chapter 9 particularly changed my life about 11 or 13 years, 11 or 12 years ago. I read it, heard a sermon on it, and started digging and digging and digging and deep, uh, deep into that chapter. And um, that's really where the title comes from, Undeniable, um, because what happens in that man's life in that chapter, um, he wasn't sure who Jesus was, but he was undeniably sure by the end of the story uh, that Jesus was somebody special. Um, and he didn't know all the details. He, did, he wasn't a theologian. He wasn't even a, a religious person. He, his life was impacted by Jesus in a way that was undeniable. And he started telling his community about Jesus and the experience that he had with him immediately based on what he had encountered, who he had encountered. So that's where the title comes from. That's why I think this whole book um, can be summarized uh, by that word, undeniable, um, because John is uh, really his mission, his motive in writing this book is to express to us um, how he came to a place of undeniable confidence uh, that Jesus was indeed the Savior, absolutely the Son of God. Um, again, John is written by John, but it's not about John. It's about Jesus. Uh, John tells us at the end of the book that he writes to us so that we might believe, so that we might know with the confidence that he knew. Uh, John wrote to his generation, but also he wrote to all generations. And if John were to kind of kind of pitch this book to us, if we could bring John into our worlds um, or get a, a, a kind of a one sentence from John in heaven, I believe John might would say something like this. Hello, my name is John, the number one follower of Jesus, not as in the best, even though you could argue that, but as in the first. Um, I'm the number one follower of Jesus. I was there on day one. Um, and this is the story about how I became convinced that Jesus was and Jesus is 
undeniably God in flesh. Don't ask me to explain it because I can't explain it as, as in detail as some of the scholars would want me to. Don't ask me to go into all the super deep, uh, you know, kind of nooks and crannies of the conversation. John is so laser focused on this one truth. Mind you, this is a, a gigantic truth, right? He doesn't attempt to chase after rabbits entertaining questions. He doesn't sit down and say, well, let's understand what the Trinity means and how God is three persons in one. He doesn't attempt to talk about how God is both Father and Son. Uh, He doesn't go into details about what it means that God is both here and there. He doesn't go into details or entertain questions about what does it mean that in the beginning there was God and there was His Word and the Word was God. He just says it. And he says, guys, I know it's complicated. I know it's over your heads. And I know it's just overwhelming. But I'm just trying to give you the basic understanding of how I know and how I believe that Jesus is absolutely undeniably God in flesh. And I can trace him back to the very beginning before the beginning. John doesn't go into a lot of detail about what it means that by the word of God he created all things. He doesn't attempt to answer those questions. And he doesn't want us to get too far in the weeds on those things, I don't think. It's not because he couldn't answer those questions. I'm pretty sure John, if anybody could, John could answer those questions. And he could write books after books after books about what all that stuff means. But that wasn't his MO. That wasn't his motive. That wasn't his reason for writing. That wasn't his inspiration, uh, of course. It's not because he couldn't. But John was, writing, was not writing a systematic theology book. He wasn't trying to educate people that, were, you know, uh, that, that would only be on the fringe. John is writing or was writing about his encounter with Jesus. That's where it all started with John, right? John wasn't in school studying about God and trying to discover all the secrets of the universe. John was just a guy. He was a fisherman, right? He, he was a, a guy who had b- got burnt out in Judaism and realized there was nothing there. The well was empty. It was dry. And he started following this cultic you know, guy from out in, the wee, out in the desert, guy named John the Baptist, right? He was called John the Baptist because he was doing this crazy thing of dunking people in the Jordan River. John got wind of this new movement and he went to a few sermons and John kept saying these powerful things like God is going to send a Messiah who's going to you know, be mightier than I could ever be and he's going to bring salvation to the whole world. And John thought, man, what do I have to lose? And he began to attend those meetings and over, after a while he became a disciple of John the Baptist. And that's how he met Jesus. So John is not really writing to, to tell us all the, the theological details. He's just telling about the personal details, the, what really matters. How he met Jesus and, and how, how he was convinced that Jesus was absolutely and without a doubt God in a body. And he thinks, he would say, if you tune in, if you follow me to the end of the story, before we even get to the end of the story, I bet you'll be convinced too. And John approached telling this story from that place. He prefaces this entire story by tracing Jesus back to the very beginning, before the beginning, the very heart to the very person of God. And again, this is over our heads, right? And this was not a Jewish, this was not something that the Jews believed. They didn't believe in a Trinity. They didn't believe in God the Father, the Son, the Spirit, the Word. They didn't, they didn't go into all that. John was kind of melding a lot of different ideas that he had, had you know, studied into. But John was just trying to tell us, hey, this is, this is where all this kind of traces back for me. John says, I've drawn the through line. I've connected the dots. And I'm absolutely sure that Jesus is the light of creation. He is the spark of life itself. And as John put it in John chapter 1 verse 14, the Word of God became flesh 
Again, again, that's crazy, right? Words put on skin? How does that happen? The Word of God became flesh. It was incarnated. That this Word that has the divinity, the divine presence of God, the Word of God became flesh, took on humanity. If you were to take all the words of God and piece them together, if you were to, and I know you've done this before or you've seen it done before, if you were to go on a website that's like a word generator, you know what I'm talking about, where you put a bunch of words in the thing and it spits out a shape, it spits out kind of a, an image with all the different words in it, right? And it makes an image that kind of portrays what all the words speak of. If you were to put all the words of God, and again, don't go quoting me on this to some theologian, they'll probably say I'm teaching some heresy, but this is kind of my general elementary way of, of, of kind of presenting this. And I think John would kind of smile at it. If we were to put all the words of God in a word generator, in an art, a word art generator, Jesus would be what would come out. In all the words of God, all the thoughts of God, all the ideas of God, all the creative power of God is wrapped in the skin, in the body, in the absolute humanity that was and is Jesus. But the Old Testament record wasn't all that God had to say. God had something new to say. But he would not say this from a mountaintop or through a prophet. He would do it himself in person. And John 1.14 tells us the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. That, that phrase dwelt among us is one Greek word and in, 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 in it's the word that we see in the Old Testament um, as tabernacle or set up a tent or camped out in our midst. But speaking of that tabernacle, that monolithic um, you know, house of worship the Jews would use, right? That in the old days, God set up a tent and that was where his presence dwelt. And John is saying in that same way, God has set up a tent among us, but it's not stuck in the wilderness. It's not only in the city of Jerusalem. It is moving around. He is moving around. He's living and breathing and he is forever God in flesh. Which would prove to be more permanent than a temple. Than any religious structure, any religious monolith of any culture, any society. Jesus is the word of God in flesh. He dwelt among us. And John says, we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He, John says it's as if God had a son. It's as if, if God, as we've always worshipped him, is this one unified being that we can't understand, and it's bigger, he's bigger than the universe, right? Solomon said all the heavens and all the heavens could not contain the presence of God. God said, John says it's almost like if God had a son, that's who Jesus is. He's God in flesh, But he comes to us as a child of God so that we might also, what did he say back in verse number 12? So that we might also be children of God. So John is telling us, the word became flesh. Jesus was and is God's ultimate and definitive message. This is, if you want to know what God has to say, you say, well, how can you sum up all the... There's a lot of words right in the Bible. Jesus, John says, hey, Jesus is God's ultimate and definitive message. He's not saying that you shouldn't read the whole book. He's just saying if you want a glimpse of who God is and if you want a filter through which you should interpret the Bible, which is very important, because you can open up to a random, chap, a random chapter in Leviticus or a random verse in Chronicles. You can open up to a random verse in the Old or New Testament and you can get off on a you know, direction you probably shouldn't go in. But John says, if you want to know what God has to say, you better make sure you look at it through Jesus and make sure that you use the words of Jesus, the person of Jesus, to filter everything else through. Because Jesus is God's ultimate and definitive message. John is so willing to put his neck on the line 
depart from the old covenant, depart from tradition. He's embarking on something new. He's so convinced about this. Listen to what he says in verse 16. Of His fullness, we have received... Now, of whose fullness? God's fullness. The fullness of God. Of the fullness of God, we have all received grace for grace. John says, indeed, or, or from of His fullness, or as Jesus has presented this to us, indeed, we have experienced the fullness of God. It's undeniable. All who have placed their faith in Jesus continually and constantly are filled with grace from God. Now, this is a pretty, a really important thing that we're going to spend most of our time on tonight. The word grace is something you read about all throughout the New Testament, right? We know what grace is. We sing about grace, right? It's pretty amazing, right? You know it and I know it. But the grace is something special. The way it's presented in this verse is very special, and it's signifying something brand new, something that we take for granted, something that we've heard about since we were children, but something for John's audience, it was brand new. This grace, again, is something special, a word that we're used to, but a word that I want to take a little closer look at. And, and again, we can ask the question, what is grace from God? But we see it all throughout the Bible, but this is a very special mention of grace. The way it's phrased there, grace for grace, or it's literally grace on top of grace, or grace in place of grace, or speaking, uh, as, speaking of something that replaces something, but something that also fulfills something. And the Greek word grace, and this will, you don't have to remember this, is the Greek word charis. It's where the word charismatic comes from, people that are filled with grace. We'll talk about that in a little bit. It's connected to this very, old, to old, this very important Old Testament theme and this very important Old Testament idea. But the word grace means favor or divine blessing. So you could almost translate uh, the, the verse 16 as, From his fullness we have received divine blessing after divine blessing, or divine blessing from divine blessing. But also, the way it's written in Greek, the second grace is different. It's almost as if the second grace is a capital G. The second grace is the end-all, be-all, fountain of God's favor. It's as if John, John is saying, Guys, I've found the blessing we've been looking for. This is capital G grace, capital F favor, capital D, capital B, divine blessing. I've found the blessing we've all been chasing. And from that one source, from that main source, from that ultimate source, God has been pouring out His grace and will never stop pouring out His grace. So that helps you to understand why there's those words back to back. Why is it grace for grace? That second word is denoted in a very specific form as if something's coming out of it. The first grace is coming out of the second grace as in this is the source and we can always go to it and receive what we need from it. Now, this idea of divine blessing is something that was sought after but never obtained through the old covenant. But John claims can be received through the new through, through Jesus. And I think that's what John is talking about when he says grace out of grace, grace from grace, grace from ultimate grace. He is saying that Jesus is this divine blessing that the Old Testament teased and spoke about. And this goes all the way back to the, to the beginning, fitting enough. But this kind of t- is rooted in this idea that the Old Testament is all about. Since the beginning, the connection between God and people has always been contingent and was always thought to be contingent on a divine blessing. And you read in the Old Testament, they were always chasing after this divine blessing, this favor from God or the gods in the ancient cultures. And Genesis 5, when it's summarizing the creation story, says this very important thing. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. 
male and female, he created them, and he blessed them. Now, that's not just, you know, that he, he was good to them, or he gave them some food and gave them some animals and said, have fun. That is a speaking of a special kind of christening, a special anointing, a special, this is something that you have to have to have a connection with me. He blessed them, and he named them. You'll always see this in the Old Testament. He blesses and names, blesses and names, blesses and claims, blesses and identifies as his own. When God blesses, he names somebody. Not because they didn't have a name before. Sometimes they didn't. Sometimes he changes their name. Sometimes he gives them a new name. You'll see where that's going, right? He says, hey, you are special. You are anointed. You are chosen. You are elect. And without this blessing, you are nothing. But with this blessing, you are everything. But what happens after that? The fall, right? The fall happens and severs this intended unity between God and humanity. And Genesis especially chronicles this quest of humanity. This quest of humanity to obtain, and very important, maintain favor and blessing from God. But because of sin, it was an up and down, in and out roller coaster ride, wasn't it? And every once in a while, they would get so close, and the blessing would be there, but then they would get so far away, and it's like they go back and forth. And if you read it, you know, you can, you can cheat the system and go, go to an online Bible and, you know, right do the thing and say, hey, show me blessing. And you can see all the times in Genesis where they are asking God to bless them, and God is blessing them. And all throughout the Old Testament, it's so important. They are chasing the blessing of God because they know without the blessing of God, we have no connection with God. But with the blessing of God, we are inseparable. And this idea of a divine blessing, of the ultimate blessing, was something the Jews chased after. But it wasn't because they pulled it out of nowhere. They traced it back to Adam. They traced it back to Abraham. Because after the fall and everything got messed up, God decided to start over with one man. He made a promise to that one man. He called to Abraham out of nowhere, back when he was still called Abram, remember? And he said this in Genesis 12. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you. And you make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So what's the theme? You're going to be blessed. You're going to be a blessing. And apart from you, nobody's getting blessed. But where is the source of this blessing? Me. And oh, by the way, Abram, your new name is Abraham because I've blessed you and I've named you. And we're going to start something brand new with this. And the whole world's going to change because of it. The idea is that Abraham's family would become, would, would have this special relationship with God, and God would look over their sin as he would have to, have to, right? Because they were no different than the rest of the world. They were sinners just like the rest of the world, but God chose Abraham and put up with Abraham, if you will, right? Especially because he wanted to change the world, and he had to start somewhere, so he picked one man. And ultimately, Abraham would be a blessing, and his family would be a blessing to the whole world, and hopefully, eventually, not just any blessing, but the blessing, the unconditional favor from God would come from Abraham's family. So if you read the story of Abraham's immediate family, it may seem kind of silly, but they are obsessed with this blessing. And you've read it before, haven't you? It's almost comical at times. They are so paranoid of somebody stealing their blessing or not getting the blessing or not getting the whole dose of the blessing. There's this literal uh, you know, tug of war between his descendants as they pass along the blessing or as they try to steal the blessing, right? As they cling to this promise. The idea was, and this was really rooted in ancient culture, but it all comes from this idea that, that God showed Abraham. The idea rooted in ancient culture as much as it is the text. Abraham would pass this blessing along. 
His family would become a nation through which God would bring both Savior and salvation. Through which the Savior promised Adam and Eve would come and through whom salvation would finally come. And if you read the story, siblings fight with each other. Wars are declared against tribes in between the family. As the family grows more and more, things get complicated. But the goal is always the blessing of God. When Abraham's son Isaac has twins, twin sons, Jacob and Esau, there's this intense drama, isn't there? Y'all know the story, Genesis 25 to Genesis 28. It's just this drama, this action-packed, you know, over a dramatic time, tug of war between not just Isaac, not just Jacob and Esau, but Isaac and, and, and Rebekah, right? Because they have a particular son in mind as to who they think should be blessed, right? You know, Isaac wants Esau, Rebekah wants Jacob because I, Esau was technically older, but Rebekah Rebecca favored Jacob because he was the mama's boy, so they were a little bit up in arms because only one of them could get blessed, right? Because this idea of passing the baton down through the lineage one son at a time until it would reach the Savior. This was so important for them and it was the way the world worked back then. So they began to to scheme with one another. Who's going to get the blessing? And you know how Jacob steals steals the birthright because of the bowl of stew. And then there's that trickery between Jacob stealing or Jacob outright lying to his dad to get the blessing that he was intended to give to Esau. It goes a little something like this. Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my name, that your soul may bless me. This is how important the blessing was. Jacob was willing to lie to his father who's on his deathbed. Right? His blind father willing to lie to him just to get the blessing because they thought if it's just spoken out, I'm going to get it and you can't undo it. So hey, I'm good for life. Now it seems silly, doesn't it? for something that was just ceremony, but maybe we could learn a little bit from just how literal and sensitive they were to getting the blessing. Because what may have been just ceremony for them, there might be more to it. We see how desperate at times these men were for this blessing. It was everything to them. Their future depended on it. Jacob worries that he's blown his chances after years of running and trickery and deception. He encounters an angel one night as he's coming back home after 20 years of just being out in the world. He encounters an angel and he wrestles this angel in this super important moment for Israel's history. Jacob literally pleads for God to reinstate or instate the blessing that he thought he had forsaken after all those years. As they're wrestling, this dawn is coming. The angel says, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob says, I will not let you go until you bless me or unless you bless me. So he's already put his hip out of socket, right? God's already showed Jacob, Jacob, you're going to have to quit fighting me if you want to be blessed by me, right? So Jacob is just, but Jacob, from his perspective, I'm not letting go until you bless me because I've been trained, I've been educated, I've been brought up to believe that unless you bless me, God, I am not going to have a future. And God says to him, Hey, let go of me. And Jacob says, nope, I'm not letting go. I want your blessing. So then God asked Jacob, what is your name? Because Jacob literally meant hill catcher. Or it literally means deceiver, trickster, supplanter. So God got Jacob to confess. Not what his name was, but who he was. A trickster. A runner. A guy who always tries to take what isn't his. Even if he's got to steal it, he'll get it because he's that determined. And, and God he sees this, this longing in Jacob's heart. 
Jacob, what's your name? And Jacob says, it's Jacob. And in that moment, he lets go. In that moment, he surrenders. And God says, from now on, your name will be Israel because you have striven with God. You have chased after this blessing. And I'm going to give it to you. And this set in motion the nation of Israel all based on this search for, this desire for, this need for the divine blessing. And know this, it was never tied to anything anybody did. It was always God's kindness, God's loving kindness. It was His never-ending mercy. And that's what the story always wants us to know. Somehow along the way, however, it became associated with man's behavior rather than God's kindness. And you've got to know this about the law as we get into that part of the Old Testament. The law, the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant did not replace the Abrahamic Covenant. The Abrahamic Covenant is the big covenant in the Old Testament. Often we replace Abraham with Moses, but the Mosaic Covenant did not replace Abraham. The promise that God made to Israel to bless them and greatly multiply them and through whom the whole world will be blessed, that was not replaced by Moses and replaced by the law. Not at all. In fact, the Mosaic Covenant was an attachment temporary attachment to teach Israel how to walk in the blessing, to translate blessing to behavior. Because they had this connection with God, they ought to look different and be different and you know, live differently so the world might know, hey, something's different about Israel and we need to know the God they know because that God is making them different and that God's making them better, so we want to be like them. The law was meant to direct what the blessing inspired, what it meant to be God's chosen and God's elect. And that's why anytime they ever worshipped the, the, the priests, Aaron and, and his men were commanded to tell the people, hey, listen, obedience is not what blesses you. God's favor, God's kindness is why you are blessed. And that's what's going to keep you blessed. You should obey God because you are His, but you don't obey God to be His. The blessing is where it's at. Numbers chapter 6 says, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. So this idea that God was doing this was not something they did. It was what God would always do. From there on, the Jews would chase after and cling to the blessing, this blessing. And as the Old Testament era would wane... As God began to turn his attention to something new, he wasn't leaving this era of the divine blessing behind. He was actually just broadening his scope. He was actually just enlarging his range. And this, this is where John really sticks his neck on the line with the Jewish community. Again, in John 1.16, he says, Of the fullness of God, like never before, we have received grace from grace. We have received. Jesus has given us the end on this divine blessing that our people have looked for forever. John says that Jesus is. Jesus is the divine blessing available for all to receive by faith. And then in this next verse, John made a statement that every Jewish believer that wasn't a Christian, every Jewish traditionalist would have called him a heretic and would have never spoke to him again. John makes a statement, and he's so confident in what he's learned that he doesn't think he's doing anything controversial at all. He's just saying what needs to be said. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. I know Moses has been our guy for a long time, guys, but he has not brought any blessing upon us. He's just, he just gave us the law. It was a temper, temporary attachment. It wasn't going to get any of us blessed. It just revealed how cursed we were. 
So John is moving the Jews away from the old covenant to the new covenant and he sticks his neck on the line and he says, guys, 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 here's where the divine blessing is. Not in Moses. Not in Judaism. Not in religion. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus isn't a next. He's a new. He's not another. He's the only. John makes it loud and clear, this powerful indistinction between old and new. The divine blessing would be given, revealed in full through Jesus and Jesus alone. So John pivots from the old. He pivots from Moses and he says that. True grace from God. Gracious truth about God comes only from Jesus. If you want true grace from God, if you want the absolute truth from God, look no further than Jesus. This divine blessing, this grace and truth would not just be an external thing though. It would definitely make an internal difference. Much like the Old Testament idea of divine blessing, the divine blessing of Jesus always brings divine presence and power. This internal difference. Now the quest for blessing of old was always for the sake of Israel's well-being. It was always that God's hand would be upon them. You've heard that right. God's hand be upon you. His favor, His protection, the hedge being about them, right? You've heard all that language. The divine blessing for Israel once the nation was established was always important because it was the way they could uh, have certainty that God would be with them, that God would protect them, that God would defend them and empower them. As Moses was about to depart from Mount Sinai to make his way to the promised land, the first attempt, Moses and God have this, have this conversation concerning what the blessing meant for them. Exodus chapter 33, this is how it went down. And Moses said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Okay, God, I don't know what your plans are. I don't know what this divine blessing means and what it doesn't mean. But if you're not going to go with us, do not send us out into the desert because it's not going to go good if, we're not, if you're not with us. And then, next verse. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? So Moses wants to make it clear. Hey, does favor mean presence? Does favor mean protection? And God says to Moses, or Moses says, is, is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Again, favor, name, blessing, ownership or claim over. So, but, but the way this is realized in the whole world isn't through a nation's prosperity or prominence. So often we often confuse this, right? We go Israel in America, Israel under another nation. The, tr- the correlation is not like that. Israel was a nation that had a covenant with God, but God does not, does not have a covenant with a nation anymore. He has a covenant with people, right? We are all from all over the world, right? We are the people of God, not just the nation of God. We are people from all nations, all tribes, all tongues. So it's not about prosperity and prominence as a nation. It's about how we behave and live out our personal lives. And we'll talk about what that looks like in a minute. But the Old Testament saints had to plea and beg for this. But they wanted more than just the surrounding presence of God. They wanted to see God. And wouldn't you? They wanted to see God face to face. And as the story goes on in that same text, Moses begs to see God to know and experience His presence personally. Moses says, okay, God, before before you send us out, would you show me your glory? 
And Moses is being really religious. He said, okay, God, I know that your presence is not just normal presence. I know your presence is glorious. So God, would you show me your glory? Basically, I want to see you, God. I've heard your voice for a long time and the fire and all the bright lights, but could I just see you? It's worth asking, right? And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, but, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Listen, Moses, you can't see me. I can't reveal myself fully to you or to anybody. But there's a place by me where you can stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. And then I will take away my hand and you will see my backside or the lesser glorious side of me. But you cannot see my face. And John calls back to that story and he grins and writes something again so controversial but something he was so sure and certain of. He says, no one has seen God at any time. Moses couldn't see him. Isn't that what the book says? God says to Moses, you can't see me. Get behind a rock, but you can't see my face. You cannot see me and live. No one has seen God at any time. And John says, but I have... And all the other disciples did too. And anybody else that witnessed him. Nobody got to see the God that we heard about in the Old Testament, but the only begotten Son who is in the bosom or from the heart of the Father, He has declared, and really the better word is, He has made Him known or He has put Him on display as in He put skin on and walked in our shoes and I've seen Him and all the other disciples saw Him and you can experience Him in the fullness of His glory unlike anybody in the old days. Right? You should be doing that if you don't. If you haven't. Make you feel good sometimes to shout and be excited. Because this is awesome, isn't it? John knew that Jesus brings the full revelation of God unbridled and undeniably true. From here, John begins to tell how he first came face to face with Jesus. He would come face to face with God himself. He introduces us to the other John, John the Baptist. He talks about how John made a big splash away from the temple. He talks about how John was preaching and that a Messiah was on his way. Verse 19, it says, in the testimony, This is the testimony of John the Baptist when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but he confessed, I'm not the Christ. Because they thought, hey, John, is, are, you just, are, you, are you claiming to be the Messiah? Because a lot of you, people, you kind of people rise up and say, hey, I'm the Messiah, then you go away, or you get killed, or you lead everybody off a cliff, and you drink Kool-Aid, nobody sees you again. They're saying to John the Baptist, you're not the first would-be Messiah in our country, and you're not the last would-be Messiah in our country. And the world will always have people that claim I'm the Christ, and they aren't. So they asked John, hey, are you the Messiah? And John says, no, I'm not the Messiah. And they're like, well, glad, we're glad we're not dealing with another crazy person. But John says, but I'm going to tell you and point you to the Messiah. Verse 24. Now those who were sent from the Pharisees, or were sent from, from the Pharisees, they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you're not the Christ, or nor Elijah, or nor the prophet? And John answered and said, I baptize you with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. He wouldn't be, he's just making, they, they, their, their hair stands up on the back of their neck. What? He says, I know you, yeah, I'm not the Messiah, but I got to tell you guys that God in flesh is in your midst and you haven't even realized it yet. 
It is he who, coming after me, is preferred before me, whose sandal straps I am not worthy to lose. These things were done by Beth, in Bethabara beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. So John's baptism was simply a picture of what the Messiah was going to do with the Spirit of God. Baptism, y'all know this, it spoke of being redeemed. It spoke of being rebranded. Immersed into a new identity, a divine identity. Immersed into the divine blessing. Now, the Old Testament Jews had an idea of baptism. It was through the anointing of oil or it was in a bronze wash pan in the front of the temple where if you were a Gentile and you came or if you were a really sinful Jew and you came and you felt like you were unclean, they would just drape some water over your head before you went into the temple because they didn't want you to drop over dead. And sometimes you did anyway. Good thing we don't worry about that, right? But John was literally immersing people in the river. And he was telling people, hey, God's going to do something even bigger than this. It all began for John. He was introduced to the Redeemer, to the rebrander, when as he followed John the Baptist along the Jordan River, verse 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, and that's really just a fancy way of saying, Look! Look, guys, there he is. The Old Testament said, Look away. Didn't it? Can't see. Isn't it amazing? They were introduced to God in the Old Testament by saying, look away, right? The angels, I got to go. The sun's coming up. You can't see me. Moses, you can't see me. You get behind the rock. The Old Testament said, look away. The blessing's here, but it's not really full because you can't really get it all because of sin and all that stuff. The Old Testament said, look away. But the New Covenant says, look. Sorry, it was loud. It needed to be. Look. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he points at Jesus and says, Look, there he is. The divine blessing was cut off by the fall. It was put off by the law, but Jesus has poured it out on all of us. It was brought back forever and for good by Jesus. The Lamb of God took away our sins so that we could take on grace and truly and fully receive the long sought after and finally obtainable blessing of God, favor and power from on high. This divine blessing is the reason why knowing Jesus will change your life. It will transform your life. The divine blessing of old stops short at truly transforming characters, but the one found in Jesus will absolutely leave you a different person touched by the divine with a new name, a new identity, a new brand, a brand new life. Grace from grace. Grace on top of grace. Full measure of God. I love the way the New Living Translation translates Romans 12 verse 6 where it says this about God's grace in his grace God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well or as best as possible certain things as, as in specific God called intentional things God has given you his grace to transform you to give you a bit of the divine within your own skin Moses was temporary but Jesus is forever 
We've learned from John, Jesus brings the presence and power to our hearts. He is the light of the world. He is the bread of life, the good shepherd. He is the gate of heaven. He is the true vine of God. He is the one and only way. He is God with us, and He is God within us. So if you want the divine blessing of God, you don't got to chase after this or that. You just have to look at Jesus. It's not for a certain tier of Christian, a certain level of Christian. It's for all who believe that Jesus is the full, unbridled, undeniable God in flesh. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for this awesome time with your word God, it's so good to be able to just celebrate this reality that you are, that Jesus is God in flesh and he brought this blessing to us. This blessing the Old Testament only teased in the Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and all these guys sought after and begged for and plead for and they only got a taste of it and Jesus comes and gives us the whole dose. John says, I've seen it. Grace on top of grace. The full measure, the full display from the very heart of God. Lord, if anybody needs a refreshing of that divine presence, that divine favor, Lord, I pray they would just say, God, I want it, I need it. And if they know Jesus, they've already got access to it. May you use this reminder to tell them, just look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and pours out the Spirit of heaven. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.